Oh, Father, what a good prayer as a congregation that we would indeed have more love for you, that we would be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that it would manifest itself in our lives by lives of obedience and that our love would be demonstrated through our obedience. Father, thank you for the encouragement that it always brings to be together with our church family. Thank you for this season where we reflect upon the reality that you came to Jerusalem that day, riding on a colt, palm branches waving, coats on the ground, people shouting and carrying on, but for one great overriding purpose, to go to the cross, to be our sin bearer. Father, would you grow us in our understanding of these realities, grow us in our understanding and our ability to think the scriptures and to apply them to our lives. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder this morning if it's possible that you sit in church and deep in the recesses of your heart, truth be known you've experienced some disappointment in Jesus. It's possible that you have had seasons in your life where things have gone very well spiritually for you. And then somewhere along the line, something happened. Maybe a major disappointment. Maybe you had some kind of a spiritual expectation. And it didn't happen the way you thought it would happen. The truth be known, deep in your heart, maybe you've even confided with others, sometimes Jesus will let you down. If that's how you feel, you're in pretty good company. Do you know that? Those who were some of the very closest to Jesus experienced moments of extreme disappointment in Jesus. I'm thinking about his disciples. One night as they cast off in a boat, Jesus, fatigued and weary with ministry, we have this story coming up in Matthew chapter 8 as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew after Easter when we pick up our series in chapter 5 where we are. Jesus, asleep in the boat, weary from a day of ministry, he's back in the back of the boat on a cushion, it says. The Sea of Galilee, and a great storm comes up. You know the story pretty well. The disciples become afraid. They become totally overwhelmed with the reality of their circumstances. And these men, some of whom grew up there on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen, who knew the water and the weather conditions very well, were very frightened and in fact believed that the boat was going to capsize and they had no hope and they were going to drown. And the Bible says that they go to Jesus and they shake Him awake And they say, Lord, don't you care if we perish? And that's none other than a word of disappointment. What are you doing? How can you be asleep when my life is about to turn upside down and I'm going to die? Come on, Jesus. He showed him, didn't he? As he did so many times in our New Testament, though he limited the use of his deity... Second member of the Godhead, all God, all man, Jesus in the flesh, born of Mary. The two come together in this most mysterious way. 
where he is a real man, but he is also all God. He limits the capacity and use of some of his deity power. That is, that if he had to go from point A to point B, he would do what? He would get out of his chair and walk there. He didn't just think himself there. He didn't, like after his resurrection, just appear in the room. But during his earthly ministry, he limited some of his God power. But often he did demonstrate it, didn't he? As he did that day, that night in the boat, in the storm with the disciples. You guys are worried about me? You guys are disappointed in me? You guys think I don't have things in control? That's my paraphrase. And he says, shalom, peace be still, and the waters calm. Jesus is never out of control. Hey, remember a couple of his very best friends were extremely disappointed in him one day? There were three evidently unmarried adult siblings, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, close friends with Jesus. When he was in their part of the country, he would stop by and refresh himself in their home. They looked forward very much to these visits with Jesus. And then one day, Jesus is a several days walk away. They send a courier and word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's Lazarus. They they didn't even have to say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Signed, Mary and Martha. He knew exactly it was their brother. John chapter 11, where that story is, it tells us a little bit of what's going on inside Jesus' thinking. And it says that he knew what he was going to do, so he waited there. Lazarus dies. The people mourn. Mary and Martha are completely distressed. And they both say the same thing to Jesus when he comes to them, even though they hadn't talked it over, I imagine. Perhaps it was some of their breakfast table talk, if Jesus would just come. If Jesus were here. And what did they say? Lord, had you been here, our brother wouldn't have died. A little while later, he runs into the other sister. Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. What's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you letting us down? We are extremely disappointed, Jesus. (laughs) What a moment. When to their amazement, he tells them to remove the, the door, the stone on the grave where it was sealed up. And the King James has that classic line, Lord, he stinketh. And Jesus called him forth. What a moment of reunion. Jesus is never out of control. But sometimes when you expect Jesus to do things that maybe he never intended to do, you can be disappointed in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 21, where we are this morning in this story that perhaps the title of your chapter 21 will be the triumphal entry This Palm Sunday story, this is the traditional text. Remember now, we're heading into Passion Week. This is Jesus coming to town. This is Jesus, right on the timetable of God's sovereign oversight of his life and ministry, coming to Jerusalem for what? To go to the cross to be the ultimate, final, complete, satisfactory, perfect Lamb, who is a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. You'll recall, and we will run into some of these moments in the Gospel of Matthew as we study, where Jesus upset the crowds. 
And he particularly upset the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is during the window of his three-year earthly ministry. And you recall times when Jesus would upset particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would become so angry with him. You see, part of it was, in their religiosity, they knew the Old Testament. They simply did not believe that this was Messiah. And then here's this guy from Nazareth, this country bumpkin, who's claiming to be the Christ. And he claims to be one with his father. I'm his son. That is a claim of equality. So these religious overseers who knew the Old Testament, who expected Messiah to come with many signs and wonders, missed the reality that this Jesus was Messiah. And so they thought it was blasphemous for him to claim to be equal with God, and so therefore they would try to kill him. Now I'm recalling, we have one coming up, where he's going to be um, teaching, and he makes some claims of deity... They get so upset, the crowd presses in on them, and it says that they they were going to throw him off a cliff. And you know what he does? He says, he just walked through the crowd. I mean, that's pretty much like, ooh. I mean, this this is a mob scene. This is hate. This is venom. This is like, bash him in, throw him off the cliff. And Jesus, why? He just walked through the crowd because it wasn't God's time. He didn't let him. Jesus was always in control. And now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem exactly on time. In fact, we're going to see from Old Testament prophecy that it was to the very day that it was prophesied in Daniel that he would come to Jerusalem as a king, as Messiah. It's remarkable. And now, one week later, he will, even through uh, the very mechanism that the people in the streets sought for him to overthrow, Rome, he will let Rome nail him to a cross. He's not going to overthrow Rome, he's going to let Rome kill him. You know, in many ways, the Bible says that Jesus was murdered in a couple passages, but in many ways, he wasn't murdered, he gave himself up to be a sacrifice. There was no surprise going on here. But you need to understand, as we read our passage and as we break it down, that this is a group of people now who are going to experience extreme disappointment in Jesus. I want to show you, though, that they really needn't have been disappointed in Jesus. And as we begin our passage, let's read the first four verses and the first three verses, and let's see, point number one in our message is that his sovereignty was displayed. Notice that his sovereignty was on display. Matthew records, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So it's a mare, donkey, with a colt, with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Let's just stop there, and let's just realize that the disciples, particularly here, have an upfront and personal view of the sovereignty of Christ being displayed. His sovereignty is displayed. I think it will be helpful to flip over to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, and I want you to see there... 
In Luke's account of this triumphal entry, he gives a little bit more detail about this particular incident. So now you have to picture it. Jesus is coming from Bethphage. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's outside of the town. He's on the edge of town. You might think of being in the suburbs, getting into the main street. And as he comes in, he hasn't been there. He's been avoiding Jerusalem because he did not want to accelerate the timetable where he had to avoid them putting him to death because he knew once he came into Jerusalem that his teaching would upset the Pharisees so much that they would put him to death. He also knew that Judas would betray him. He knew all along that he had sin in his camp and that he had the devil personified in his own camp. He knew that. And that God will orchestrate and connect the dots at just the right time for the plan of salvation to unfold. But look what Luke says in Luke 19. Verse 29, he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount of what is called Olivet. And then he sends sent two of his disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which, here's a good detail, no one has ever yet sat. An unbroken, untrained colt. Untie it and bring it here. Now Jesus also in his omniscience anticipates exactly what's going to happen. He's never out of control. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, sure enough, its owners said to them, hey, 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 why are you untying my colt? That's what it says. And he said, the Lord has need of it. That's a great phrase. And look what happens. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on this colt. Back to Matthew 21. I think there's a little word here inside the message, off note for just a second. And picture what just happened. Picture. A couple grown men are told to go into the neighborhood, to a place they've never been before, to somebody they don't know. Jesus has never been there. Jesus probably doesn't know. Well, he knows everything. Does he know that they are followers of him? That they have been part of the crowds in the past and they've seen him do miracles? We don't know. We're not given that kind of detail. But I think it's pretty incredible that as somebody comes out on their front porch because they hear the gate rattle and they look down and they see two grown men that they don't know untying their mare and their colt and they say, hey, what are you doing? And the men look up at the porch and they say, Jesus has need of it. And then it's not recorded for us, but here's what I think. Evidently, there was no problem. It's kind of like, oh, why didn't you just say so? If Jesus has need of it. And you know, I was hit in my study with a little life lesson there. That every once in a while, Jesus wants your stuff. Every once in a while, God wants to borrow your stuff. And he wants to use it on a day, particular day. And you weren't planning to use it like that, but all of a sudden, Jesus has need of it. Is your stuff available like that? If the word comes that the Lord has need of it, Do you unloose those hands and let it go? Does your stuff own you or do you own the stuff? God gave it to you. He owns it. Let him use it. How cool is it for him to tell his neighbors from then on? You see that colt out there? 
That's the coat that Jesus rode into town. I'm right pleased about that. It's a little bit like George Washington slept in that bedroom right up there. I just thought that was a good little life application for us to ponder. The Lord has need. Oh, why didn't you say so? Sure. A surrendered life. Back to our first point that his sovereignty was displayed. Notice that his omniscience and his knowledge was demonstrated. His all-knowingness. Omni, it means everywhere. Science, knowledge, omniscience, omniscience. All-knowingness. He knew exactly the location of that cult in verse 2. Notice in verse 3 that he knew exactly the question that would be asked. Before it ever happened, he knew it. He demonstrated to his disciples his sovereignty. What does sovereignty mean? Sovereignty means that you have absolute control over an area. If you are sovereign over something, it means you absolutely control it. And God is absolutely sovereign. It means that there is no part of it that is not under his attention and his control. He's never caught by surprise. He knows all things. And Jesus is demonstrating that part of his deity. And then his omnipotence is displayed. Riding an unbroken young colt. He said, well, you know, it was just a good-natured one. Yeah, right. You go get a young colt that's unbroken, untrained, and go ride it in the barnyard, and maybe you'll get away with it. Bring it into town where everybody's screaming and waving palm branches and throwing their coats down and flapping, and, and this, this young colt walks through town like the, gray, the old gray mare. Like it's been pulling trolley carts through, you know, Central Park all its life. That is nothing other than a demonstration of the omnipotence of Christ. He is in control. No need to be disappointed there. He's an omnipotent Lord and Savior. Number one, his sovereignty was displayed. Number two, I want you to see that the scriptures were fulfilled. The scriptures were fulfilled. Look at verse four. He says, all this, the story we've just been talking about, going to get the colt, bringing it down, going into town, throwing his coat on it, putting Jesus on it. All this, verse four, Matthew 21, says that it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, verse 5 is a direct quote from the prophet, okay, this prophet is Zechariah from our Old Testament, many years before, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We don't even have to turn to Zechariah 9.9 because that's an exact quote. This is an example, by the way, on our introduction to the Gospel of Matthew where we recognize that Matthew will repeatedly be quoting the Old Testament. More than any other Gospel writer, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Why? Because his audience, the Jews, knew the Old Testament. So he continually throws it up in front of them to demonstrate that this is exactly who he's talking about based upon the prophecies of the Old Testament. I think there's another little life lesson here, by the way, a little Bible study lesson that we see. Zechariah, several hundred years before, had had prophesied that when Messiah comes, he would ride into town on an unbroken, untrained colt that was the colt of the mare, and that it would be exactly like that. 
Do you know that we live in a, in a time frame where it's very popular for Bible students to look at prophetic passages of Scripture, particularly about the second coming of Christ? All right, so get this straight. What we're talking about right here, Jesus literally, physically riding into Jerusalem on a donkey five days later to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sin. This is all part of the first coming of Christ. It started with Mary and and the, the angel informing her that she would bring Messiah into the world, germinated by the Holy Spirit, brought in by the Holy Spirit. Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, Mary would be, and she would be impregnated by none other than the Holy Spirit himself, and he would ha- she would have the God-man baby. All man, all God, total mystery. All right? But he would come out of the love and direction of the Heavenly Father to do what? To come to this week to go to the cross because we couldn't help ourselves. I used to go to a a little church up in the Eskimo village of Alaska on the middle mouth mouth of the Yukon in a muddy, muddy Eskimo village called Imanak, Imanak, Alaska. There was a little plywood church building there, and a few handful of believers would gather for church. And I remember we used to sing a chorus there. I owed a debt I could not pay. And it went on to say, and he paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. It's a great little course. I owed a debt I could not pay. Some of you know that feeling. You've been to bankruptcy court. We're bankrupt spiritually. I can't get out of this. I can't pay my bills. But then he enters the picture and he pays a debt he cannot, he didn't know. That's what's happening here. God, out of his love, sends Jesus to intercept and interrupt our mess of sin and go to the cross on our behalf and pay a debt he did not owe. He substitutes in and he opens up a whole brand new line of credit. So I now have the righteousness of Christ that I did nothing to earn. And he has my sin and the sin of all people who ever lived from Adam until the second coming of Christ heaped upon him at the cross. That's why God, on Good Friday night, when Jesus is on the cross, still with a little bit of breath of life in him, Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He will do that because that's the moment when the sin of the world and all mankind is placed upon him and a holy heavenly father cannot look at him and has to look away and he is forsaken by his own father, spiritually speaking, right there. The spiritual pain of that moment was worse than the physical pain. But then Jesus doesn't die right then. Jesus completes the task finishes the course, and he says, it is finished. What's finished? Complete and done once for all. The debt is paid, and he has met the demands of a holy God who says the wages of sin is death. And it's finished. And then he dies, because the wages of sin is always death. So Jesus had to die because of the sin that wasn't his sin, but that was the debt that he was paying that we owed. That's all happening this week, and that's all the first coming. 
The first coming of Christ was for Jesus to come, be born of Mary, minister, manifest His deity, prove to us that He was God in the flesh, prove to us that God loved the world so much He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, go to the cross, meet the demands of a holy God, substitute in for us, Three days later, no miracle for God to rise from the dead. The miracle would have been if He stayed dead. He rises from the dead, proving His deity, and now it's your turn to respond to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. God won't do that for you. You've got to link up with God by faith and believe and receive this free gift of salvation. This is all the first coming of Christ. Well, I got off on a little cul-de-sac there, but I was going to say now, the second coming of Christ is when Jesus is going to come in the clouds and return. Remember when Jesus went back to heaven and the angel by the, there spoke to the disciples and said, this same Jesus who's taken up in front of you will come again one day just as you've seen him go into heaven. Well, here's what I was starting to say about this little lesson about this donkey prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. That's where we are. I'll go back to Matthew 21. Zechariah 9.9. He's going to come in on a donkey, the foal of, of the mare, the colt's going to be the one. And it's exactly... Here's what I was saying. Especially when it comes to the second coming prophecies of Christ about when he will return again, when he will receive his church unto himself, when Second Peter says the earth is going to be scorched with fire, and when there's going to be a whole new kingdom established, and when the end times will be fulfilled. And heaven and hell are real, and all this is going to take place. You know what people do? They say, oh, that's not what it means. He's coming again, but it's just like a spiritual reality in your heart. He's not going to come in. You know what I see in the first coming prophecies? And I've said this repeatedly here. In Zechariah 9.9, a donkey and a colt come in. And years later, Zechariah comes fulfilled. Matthew says he's fulfilled. And Jesus is riding, guess what? A real donkey. It's not a spiritual donkey. It's not a donkey in your heart. It's not a donkey in your imagination. It's not a donkey that's not really a donkey. It's a donkey. There it is. So stop trying to make your Bible say something it doesn't say. All the first coming prophecies are so literal. Why aren't the second coming prophecies literal? I'll tell you something. They are. There's no reason to believe that they're not. You know, I want to show you something really quickly about another prophecy, though, too. This one's not so obviously obvious. So point number one, we're saying that his sovereignty was displayed. Second point of our message is scriptures were fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled right in front of their eyes. I want to take a couple more minutes and I want you to go to Daniel chapter 9. And I want to take a minute and I want to show you another prophecy that is not as obvious that was fulfilled on this day when Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem. This is a most remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. Now, you know that when we're talking about prophecy, the word prophecy, we're talking about something that is said way back here before anything ever happens, and then someday, way down here, many, many years later, it comes true. That's what we mean by prophecy. All right, just make sure we're clear. Prophecy, and it's going to come true. 
In Daniel chapter 9, and you know this Daniel really well. This is Daniel in the lion's den, okay? And this is Daniel whose buddies are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know that almost all of the stories of the book of Daniel take place in ancient Babylon. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, in the later part of Daniel's life, there's another king, Darius, who puts him in the lion's den. But under Nebuchadnezzar, most of Daniel's adult life is lived. And Daniel's probably well into his 80s when Darius throws him in the lion's den, by the way. He's not a kid then. But why is he in Babylon? And what does Nebuchadnezzar have to do with the Israelite young people? Just listen really close. I'm going to give you like the Reader's Digest condensed, condensed version. But it's very interesting. For hundreds of years, Israel had possessed the land after Moses. And you know, they were living happily ever after. They were God's people. And this is the time of the kings, and they're they're living. There's all kinds of things happening. But do you remember what Israel did over and over and over again? They turned away from God. And one of the things that God told them way back in Moses' day, is that when you possess the land, every seven years, guess what you get to do? You get to take it off. That's not a bad deal. Pretty good plan. One out of every seven days, take it off. You workaholics, one out of every seven days, take it off. Seven-week cycle, is a seven-day week is established. And God puts into this... This year of rest. So that every seventh year, they were to change up what they did. They were to forgive debts. They were not to plant their fields, but they were let their fields to lie fallow so that they could be refreshed and so forth. Do you know that for hundreds of years, Israel did it, but in that time frame, under the Old Testament, all the kings and chronicles and all the time that they were living until the prophets come. Do you know what? Most of the prophets in our Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, that's a joke, he's not a prophet. That's Jeremiah weeping, Lamentations. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, all those guys, they're prophesying against Israel, the word of God. Why? Because they're turning away from God. And do you know what one of the main things they didn't do? They didn't keep the Sabbath, and they didn't keep the seventh year break. And in fact, do you know in those, in a, in a window of about 800 years, do you know how many seven year frames went by and they skipped the seventh year? Because here's what happens. Hey everybody, this is the seventh year, we gotta take it off. What do you mean take it off? My crops are booming. I've never been making more money than I'm making now. And you've got to forgive debts. What do you mean forgive debts? I'm not forgiving that guy debt. He owes me too much. Furthermore, he's my son-in-law. I'm not forgiving him nothing. And so you got all this going on. It's like, come on. This is a great year. The crops are going to be great. And so I'm not taking the year off. And they plant and they do everything normal. And they live essentially as God's secular people, not as their spiritual people. In a time frame of about 800 years, they skipped 70 of those seventh year rests. They kept a bunch, like 114 of them, but they skipped 70 of them. All right, now here's the part where it gets interesting. God told them through Jeremiah and Isaiah and other prophets that if they didn't straighten up and obey him and stop offending him, 
by worshiping other gods. It's a problem we don't have. We always worship God, right? They were distracted, worshiping things they shouldn't worship. And so God said, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty wicked warrior from the north, and he's going to spill over you like a boiling pot full of water. He's going to come down here and get you. He's going to burn down your city gates, knock down your city walls, destroy the temple. And indeed he did. He destroyed Solomon's magnificent temple. He took took their children away from them. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he marched them way up out of Jerusalem, up into Baghdad, Iraq, in Babylon, and that's where he reprogrammed him, and, and the Jerusalem was in ruins. All right? That was all prophesied. So in Daniel chapter 9, i got to get through this. Listen, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel wakes up one morning, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he realizes, probably something he knew all along, he's studying Jeremiah and he realizes that God said through Jeremiah that because you missed 70 of the seventh year, year of rest, I'm going to take you out of the land for 70 years. So dawns on Daniel one day in chapter 9, whoa, 70 years is about up. Daniel's an old man. He's been in captivity all that time, 70 years, and he realizes they're down to the wire. And he reminds God of that. And he says, God, 70 years is up. When can we expect for you to restore us to the land? When are you going to rebuild the walls? When are you going to put the gates back up? The temple, when is it going to be rebuilt? When are we going to get regather your people? You promise, God. And here's what God answers him in Daniel 9.25. This is very interesting. Daniel 9.25, the answer comes to Daniel, and this is what he says. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again which is a funny translation there, but the point that he's saying is this. Now listen, here's where it gets a little complicated. He says there's going to be 62 weeks and 7 weeks. That equals 69. Okay? It ends up that God is revealing to Daniel that the years that he's talking about are not one year for 70 years, but it's 7 years for each of the 70 years. 490 years total. Whoa! Sin is worse than I thought it was. Okay. And he's telling him, though, that at the end of 69 of those weeks of years, 69 sets of seven years, 483 years, in 483 years, look what he says. Look back down at verse 25. Know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of the Anointed One will be, in essence, 483 years. Here's what I want to tell you. That word came to Daniel. He's wanting to go back to Jerusalem. Here's what happened. If you read the first couple chapters of the book of Nehemiah, you will see there that a godless king named Artaxerxes will be approached by God's man, Nehemiah, and Nehemiah will say, King, would you be so kind as to sign an edict to let me go back to Jerusalem to rebuild your walls and your gates and reestablish the city? 
Would you even give me a, a passport to go through some other countries and to harvest timber? And would you take care of me and even send me some soldiers? And you know what Artaxerxes did that day to Nehemiah, God's man who had been crying and praying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? He signed an edict. That's what Daniel's talking about right here. From the Understand that from the going out of the word to restore Jerusalem, that was when Artaxerxes in 444 BC responded to Nehemiah's request and signed and said, we can do it. And Nehemiah began to, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. If you go to 444 BC and you add 483 years then, it says seven weeks and 62 weeks until, look at until the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Who's the anointed one? Who's the prince? It's Jesus himself. If you do the math, and Bible students have worked this out beautifully, 444 B.C., Artaxerxes signs a document for Nehemiah and says, go ahead and rebuild. 483 years takes us to 33 A.D. And it's the very day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. 483 years, exactly. 62 and 7 to make 69, 7 weeks, 7 groups of 7 years each. It's amazing. I, I don't expect you to repeat that on a test. And I even struggled, I struggled to understand it a little bit. But that's true, and that's amazing. There, as that donkey comes into town, and Jesus is on a donkey, it happens on the very day when 483 years is complete. And 69 sevens, 69 groups of seven years has passed. By the way, the 70th week of Daniel's lost. And there's evidently a gap, and that's what we call the Great Tribulation period coming, a seven-year period. If all 69 of the other seven groups of seven years, uh, uh, 69 groups of seven years were literal years, equaling 483 years, which is exactly what it did. Artaxerxes in 444 to Jesus coming in Jerusalem in 33 AD, it was literal years. Why won't the 70th week of Daniel be a a literal year? Good question. So we have God's, Jesus, his sovereignty was displayed, the scripture was fulfilled, and that that is more of a blessing to us than the people there that day. I think it would be almost impossible for someone there that day to have recognized, although a serious Bible student like Tom Jesserin might have figured it out that day. I was just reading Daniel and Jeremiah and Nehemiah, and I've just put it all together. By the way, it is a good encouragement to us, isn't it, to study the scriptures as though we were hunting for hidden treasure rather than superficial two-minute devotions on the fly. When you begin to study and dig into the word, it'll make a big difference. Well, not only that, his servanthood was modeled. He comes in on a donkey. He's a servant. So his sovereignty was displayed. His script, the scripture was fulfilled. His servanthood was modeled. But for all the people, their salvation was misguided, number four. Their salvation was misguided. Let's read the rest of the passage in Matthew 21 and and, uh, wrap it up. Matthew 21, Zechariah's prophecy in verse 5, now verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. That was a subservient action. Walk on my coat. You're above me. 
And others cut branches from the trees, spread them out on the road, and the crowds went before him and that followed him and were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They got part of it right. They missed a big part of it. Do you know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means save now. Right now. Do you know to this crowd what it was? Number one, it was a statement of impatience. It was a statement of impatience. Jesus, save us now. And they meant right now from Rome, I'm paying too many taxes. Right now, this government is overwhelming me. They're not letting me put my cattle on my own land. Get rid of this government. Save us now, Jesus. And so when they shouted, Hosanna, save us now, it was a statement for that crowd of impatience. We want free from Rome right now. The second thing that is a statement as they shouted, Hosanna, is that it was with misguided expectation. Misguided expectation. We want a king. We want a warrior. We want someone to protect us. We want to restore nationalism in old Israel. We want the glory days of King David back again. Sitting on the throne of David. That's who they said. This is the son of David. This is the right one for the throne. And instead of overthrowing Rome, he lets Rome nail him to a cross. What a disappointment. Finally, It represents this word, Hosanna, save us now. Not only is it a word of impatience, a word of misguided expectation, but it is a word of limited understanding to this crowd. Save us now. Save us now. We're not going to worry about the future. And I remind you, what good is it if you get your kingdom restored and you don't have to pay taxes and there's a a horse in every stall and you lose your soul? Listen, if you could have interviewed the crowd on that street today... In a heartbeat, they would have traded their eternal future to just have a king on a real throne in Jerusalem to throw over Rome, to overthrow Rome. It's not what they needed. They had an expectation that was far short of what God was giving them. You ever get disappointed in Jesus? It's almost always because our expectations are off. It's often because of impatience too, isn't it? God, I want you to do it now. God, it would please me, my plan, my agenda, for you to answer my prayer right now the way I want it answered. And when he doesn't, we get sick of praying, we get sick of trusting, and we get right down sick of Jesus. He's not accomplishing my plan. And you've got streets in Israel, streets in Jerusalem this day, filled with people that in just a few days are going to walk home and shake their head and scratch their head and say, I don't know what happened here. We thought we were going to establish a new king on David's throne. And instead, he's hanging on a cross outside the village, outside the city. What's that all about? It's about a much greater kingdom. These people would have had a king for a day and sold their souls. Instead of having a lord for their life, they wanted a king for the day. How about you? You want to manipulate Jesus? You want Jesus to fit your agenda? I assure you, he's never out of control. You don't want a king for a day. You don't, want a, you don't want a lucky charm in Jesus. You want the Lord of your life to rule and reign and trust him and serve him. He's sovereign over it all. Let's bow our heads.
Two things with our heads bowed. Maybe the lights are turning on today as to why Jesus came. As we've preached and talked, you realize that he came to meet the demands of a holy God on your behalf. Why don't you reach out today in the quietness of your mind right now. Admit that you're a sinner. Receive as a free gift this salvation that's in Christ, the finished work of Christ at the cross. Say something like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner today and I need Jesus as my Savior. I believe that he's the Christ and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. In Jesus' name, forgive me of my sin. Make me your child. God sees your heart and your mind. We're happy to talk more with you and help you understand what following Christ is all about. Others of you today, will you examine your heart? And maybe there's some today that need to stop being so impatient and upset with Jesus. Some of you need to to give Jesus a break. He's just not coming through for you. And the fact of the matter is you need to be quiet. You need to bow your head. You need to humble your heart. And you need to let him be Lord of your life, not king for a day. And so, Father, teach us how to walk with you. Teach us how to love you more. Teach us how to let you rule and let your plan unfold in marvelous and beautiful ways that perhaps we've never dreamed of. Thank you for our Bible and fulfilled prophecy, how it encourages us. Thank you for this great day when Jesus came into town to fulfill your plan for him and that he was willing to pay a debt he didn't know. It's in his name we've gathered, preached, prayed, and go home. Amen.